Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 39 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 28th of October. And this week we're talking to Stephen Munchenberg, the CEO of the Australian Bankers Association, who incidentally is retiring from the field of uh, conflict. That's right, that's right. He's uh, retiring at the end of this month, isn't he? That's right, yeah. Been there boy, quite a long while. That's right, and Steve Munchenberg's talking to us about banks and the campaign for a royal commission. And after that, we're going to have a chat with AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the latest CPI figures and their implications for rate cuts. Yeah, and such as they are. He reckons it'll be held off, but we'll get one in the new year. Okay, let's listen to Stephen Munchenberg. Stephen Munchenberg, the banks have been a lot in the news lately. Uh, you've got Labor's calling for a royal commission, uh, insisting that they're going to push through with it. Uh, you've got uh, coalition backbenchers pushing for a banking tribunal. What's your view about all of it? Uh, look, we absolutely are in the news, obviously, and I think there's a few things that are going on, Leon. But first of all, I think that um, there are clearly some, been some issues in the industry, I and mean, we've acknowledged that, um, and we do know that there are things in the industry that need to be fixed. We haven't always lived up to our standards, let alone the community standards. So there are some substantive issues that need to be dealt with. Beyond that, though, I think we are experiencing some of the reaction against uh, well-established institutions that we're seeing around the world. So when people are feeling like they're struggling to make headway, they look at the banks, they see the profits, they see what the executive salaries are and there is undoubtedly some resentment and frustration about the banks there, particularly when we're making hard decisions on interest rates and those sorts of things. Uh, and then look, the third thing, and we have to be honest about this, is you know the clearly Given the makeup of the government, given the Prime Minister's background, you know, I think Labor do see this as a, a very you know, powerful political attack on the Prime Minister per se. So those things are, three things have come together to keep us very much on the front pages, regrettably. How are you handling that? Well, look, I think first of all we have to, and we, as we have, we have to acknowledge that there are actually some, some genuine issues. So earlier this year the industry announced um, a range of changes that we would be making. We've appointed a former Commonwealth Auditor General to oversee that, to make sure we actually do what we say we're going to do. Um, and to give an illustration of that, we've got a, a former Australian Public Service Commissioner, no connection with the banking industry, that's right, yes. yeah, looking at um, the way in which bank staff are paid. So one of the concerns that's been expressed is, you know, are bank staff paid in a way that encourages them to put their interests before the customers? We acknowledge that this is something that's got to be looked at, so we're doing an independent and very public review about that. So there's a range of things we need to acknowledge need to be fixed, and we need to fix those sorts of things. Beyond that, look, we've got to explain the, the decisions we make. We undoubtedly do have to be accountable for making the tough calls on interest rates, for example. Um, and beyond that, we've got to make a better job at actually saying, you know, it's actually important to have a solid banking system at the core of our economy. Well, the banks recently, in the, in the last set of interest rate cuts, uh, did not pass on the full cuts, which they did in May, and they copped a lot of flack over that. Do you think the banks explained it properly? Well, look, I think with hindsight, we would acknowledge we, we could have done a better job of that. I mean, we've been, uh, it's now eight years since the Reserve Bank cash rate sort of mirrored actual bank funding costs. Uh, and through that whole time, we've been trying to explain these things. We actually understand that you know, pe people do get it. Um, and But we still have to keep explaining those, those decisions. What has changed that mean we can't pass it on? So you should have done a better job explaining that, do you think? Well, I think with hindsight, and we saw the reaction and we saw the Prime Minister's reaction and various other things, yes, we should have. And I think you know, we will 
we will learn from that and going forward we acknowledge and understand that we have to explain these things. We're now going to be fronting a parliamentary inquiry uh, where we will have every opportunity to explain exactly what it is that goes into these decisions. Well, now, now, the, rule, now the rule is that they have to, the banks now have to turn up to a, a parliamentary committee regularly to explain their positions. I mean, I mean, how do you, again, you know, this is again putting the banks really on the spot and how do you manage that? Well, look, it's very unusual for a business to have to turn up before Parliament and explain its commercial decisions. But you know, we're not—we get—we're not ordinary businesses. We get these are decisions that affect everyone, and we get that everyone is therefore entitled to an explanation. So this is the vehicle the government has chosen to provide us with to to make that explanation, um, and we will be making full use of that opportunity. I mean, the banks seem to be heading into a lot of headwinds. Uh, the the latest uh, profit reports show there's a whole lot of bad debts uh, hitting their bottom lines, and this is, these are all the banks. And uh, you know, despite them making good profits, the bottom line, the profitability has definitely been hit by bad debts, and uh, I would say low interest rates as well, and and for that matter, the low wages growth as well. What's your view about this? Undoubtedly, the industry is facing a number of headwinds. You've mentioned some of them. Others are technological disruption is, is you know, going to make a big impact on banking. You know, we can win out of that, but we can also be, be threatened by that. Um, and there's a whole range of things that are going on. And we've got to see that in the context of continuing and arguably growing global uncertainty as well. So one of the things that worries us about all this talk about a Royal Commission, for example, is not only do we think it's unnecessary because we're already dealing with the issues, but also if something goes wrong internationally, and we head back into the sorts of difficult times we had back in 2008, 2009, we must be able to project to the world that we have confidence in our safe, stable banking system. And a Royal Commission actually calls into question that confidence. So we actually think it is not only unnecessary, but actually a dangerous thing to be you know, toying with. Now, Moody's uh, yesterday put uh, the majors on uh, negative outlook. And Moody cited issues about, uh, well, the, the headwinds I was talking about. Uh, again, uh, is it how, how should the banks be responding to this? Well, look, I think this is a, an illustration of why we can't take for granted confidence in their banking system, particularly from offshore investors, you know, the people who ultimately have to um, you know, we have to raise money from to fund the economy. So we have one of the strongest banking systems in the world, one of the best regulated banking systems in the world, but we can't just be complacent about this. You know, the Moody's decision a few months back, the S&P decision, all say that we should be working flat out to project confidence in the banking system, not playing politics with it. You talk about uh, technology. I mean, how big an issue is technology now? Now, how much will technology change the banking sector? I mean, what's the prospect of say you're going to get a? I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, or even if it's going to happen. But say, let's say, if an Apple or a Google went into the banking business, how would the banks respond to this? Well, look, the main way the banks are responding to this is actually by making sure they're at the cutting edge of technology. So, you know, we've seen the banks invest huge amounts of their dollars and efforts into making sure they're delivering cutting-edge technologies to the customers who want it, and many customers do want it. Um, Australians are, are very enthusiastic adopters of a lot of these sorts of technologies. And you know what we know is that when people can do their banking on their mobile phone or their iPad or whatever, they're very happy about their banking, it works how they want it to. But the reality is that with more and more people coming into this market on the back of technology, alternative lenders or you know, alternative service providers, you know, the banks are going to be kept on their toes. 
There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin and digital currency and things like that on an international basis. How does the Australian bank see that? You know, some say Bitcoin's unreliable, but it's there. Um, how, how's the, how are you going to handle it here? Well, look, I think Bitcoin itself is is probably just an early manifestation of things that are, we are going to have to deal with, and, and that is ultimately you know, the technology that underlies Bitcoin, this, these blockchains. The blockchain technology is actually potentially very useful to banks. Um, you know, banks are large institutions with huge processes, and blockchain can actually help banks deliver better products and services. But it does also highlight the risks of disruption as well, because if we can use them in those ways, so can potentially competitors. And there's also the NPP, the new payments plan coming in, which would seem to remove at least one of the functions that traditionally banks have had in movement movement of uh, current movement of payments internationally and in this case instantly well the mpp is about providing a better um, platform for for the payment system and about you know for example in very simple terms one of the things that it will do is allow much faster financial transactions so obviously for many years one of the frustrations many customers had was you know you you make your transaction but it can take 24 hours or longer to get processed whereas this is going to speed all of that up and make things a lot a lot more instant and that's an example of where the banks are investing themselves in technology to keep ahead of the disruptors and this will add to efficiency and add to the fact we're a global economy well it will it'll do that and it also delivers one of the key things that customers want which is they just want their banking to be convenient and to work and to work quickly for them so building on those things is going to make customers you know more satisfied with their banking so really technology is there for the banks to adjust to and to use to build their market share Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it's a two-edged sword because it empowers potential competitors. But I think more than that, it's actually going to allow banks to change the way they service the needs of customers. Steve Munchenberg, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. So there you go. You know, the banks are very much on the nose with the public, but a lot of that's pretty unfair, I think. Well, yes, and uh, it's part of the system. And, uh, you know, frankly, as we've discussed before, I don't think a royal commission is the way to go because it's just going to make uh, lawyers very rich and uh, there are other ways of dealing with the issue. Yeah, and you can have a royal commission, it takes a couple of years and then nothing happens. That's right, that's right, and you're $50 million poorer. That's right, yeah. Okay, and now to Shane Oliver, and we should point out, we interviewed him on Skype, Uh, nothing wrong with Skype, but the line to Sydney was shocking, and so we've got an echo, And but his voice is clear enough, and what he's saying is very interesting. Shane Oliver, the uh, inflation figures came out today and it uh, shows it's uh, quickening faster than expected. Yeah, inflation uh, at a headline level was a little bit stronger than expected, up 0.7% or 1.3% over the year. And of course, that that annual rate is up from just 1%. So that was stronger than expected. But against that, the the inflation number is a little bit confusing because most of the rise in headline inflation was driven by higher prices for things like electricity, property rates and charges, uh, tobacco prices, fruit and vegetable prices and so on. If you look at the underlying measures, they're still very low. In fact, the underlying rate of inflation over the last year is just 1.5%. So these numbers are probably low enough um, to justify the Reserve Bank cutting rates if it wants to, but I think they're, they're not, um, they're not, it's not a, a dead certainty for next week anymore because um, on the one hand, it looks like inflation might be bottoming out. It's in line with what the Reserve Bank was thinking in terms 
terms of their own expectations. Um, and you could also argue that beyond the inflation numbers, the growth numbers in Australia have generally been quite good. And we've seen higher prices for commodity prices like coal. National inkling is that the Reserve Bank will most likely leave interest rates on hold for the time being and then probably revisit the issue again next year if the inflation proves to be stubbornly low. But, I mean, I noticed there were some one-offs, like, for example, uh, fruit and vegetables uh, increased by a massive amount because of uh, the bad weather conditions. Yeah, we have to allow that there were um, inflation was not quite that high, fruit and vegetable prices up something like, I think fruit prices up something like 19%. Now, we've seen this happen lots of times before. There was a cyclone in North Queensland many years ago, um, caused a huge surge in banana prices, uh, which impacted the CPI. And the history of these things is that they reverse out uh, the next quarter or two once the weather changes. So um, I wouldn't get too worried about the rise in uh, some of the one-offs. I think they will reverse. The underlying rate of inflation remains very low. Um, and if you're looking at all the arguments which sort of uh, for against another rate cut. Obviously, low inflation is one of them, um, but other arguments seem to be pointing in the other direction at the moment. But, I mean, the new Governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, Philip Lowe, has indicated that they're not absolutely fixated on inflation, and they're prepared to tolerate it when it's uh, pretty weak if the labour numbers are good and if the uh, economy is growing. I mean, what, what do you say about that? I, I think it comes down to a balancing act for the Reserve Bank at the moment. Um, see, on one hand, we are getting these very low inflation numbers. On the other hand, um, overall, which is stronger than virtually or virtually any other advanced country around the world, and uh, commodity prices, which are a key driver of national income or the terms of trade, they've been rising. So there's lots of arguments in either direction, I guess, at the moment. But I think at the end of the day, uh, the new governor, Philip Lowe, will probably choose to uh, to sit tight for the time being. And he has indicated a degree of um, reticence to sort of uh, want to push inflation up too quickly again because he's a bit worried that if he does that, then it might have the effect of causing financial imbalances in the economy. In other words, you cut rate and that just further fuels the pick-up in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne. I think, given all those arguments, probably lean to the case to sort of sit tight on rates at the moment. Still retaining an easing bias, but uh, maybe not acting on that till next year. Last week's employment figures uh, go to this at all because the employment figures show that, uh, you know, there was a massive loss of jobs, something like 9,800 jobs were lost and the full-time job markets collapsed and uh, somehow it's staying at 5.6%. But uh, would that feed into this? I think the jobs figures certainly would feed into the RBA's thinking because if you're thinking about um, economic data, the jobs numbers lately have been weak. Um, And it's that full-time story, which was the big issue. Full-time jobs fell by 0.4% over the last 12 months. Um, So that would certainly be a a factor weighing on the Reserve Bank and may incline them to sort of say, like, we've got low inflation, we've got low jobs growth, that means low wages growth, Um, let's cut again. Counter-argument to that, though, is that the jobs figures uh, a year ago were unbelievably strong, um, and now they look a bit too weak to me if you compare it against uh, figures for various job vacancy indicators, the ANZ Job Ad series. Um, they all look okay to me. They're telling me the jobs market looks okay. Um, so I think the Reserve Bank will probably say, yes, those jobs numbers are a worry, um, but they haven't been so reliable lately. They exaggerated a year ago. They might be exaggerating the weakness we're seeing now on the downside, therefore best to uh, to wait to see what happens regarding the jobs figures going forward. Because, of course, a number of economists have been questioning uh, the ABS following those jobs figures uh, because they were all over the place. They have been all over the place and they've been all over the place for a year or two now. Um, the ABS seems to be having problems with its monthly job survey. Um, I suspect that the sample size is perhaps too small. Maybe the, the pressure on uh, ABS resourcing has been too intense and cost-cutting has taken its toll. Um, 
but in any case, yeah, there are question marks about the, the reliability of the uh, the monthly jobs figures. Not only do they bounce around too much month to month, but they seem to they seem to have problems with the, the samplings that are coming in and out. So each month is made up of slightly different samplings to the previous month as people come in and out of the survey, um, and that seems to be perhaps distorting the, uh, the the results from month to month. So how much stock can we put in the ABS figures on employment then? Well, they're a rough guide, but they're rough, and that's probably the best way to look at it. Uh, we have seen a decline in the unemployment rate over the last 12 months um, from above 6% to now 5.6%. Um, that's probably a guide to what happened, but um, I think month to month the jobs figures are incredibly unreliable. I wouldn't read too much into the loss of 10,000 or so jobs last month. Any more than a year ago, um, uh, you shouldn't read too much into the very strong jobs growth we're seeing month to month a year ago. I think you've probably got to focus on the trend, and maybe the ABS is right. They keep saying we should just focus on the trend numbers, which they also publish. Um, yeah, but I'll be a bit sceptical about the monthly jobs figures. Now, uh, I mean, given that uh, we have jobs figures aren't that good, uh, low wages growth, uh, so chances are we're going to be stuck with this weak inflation for quite some time, uh, and uh, that seems to be the Reserve Bank sinking. Your, your view about that? I think that's right. If you look at the uh, what's driving low inflation, it's a combination of uh, spare capacity globally, and so we had the GFC, but the recovery from it's been fairly slow, so a lot of factories are still idle or not operating at full capacity globally, and that's, that's resulting in intense competition. And then secondly, we're seeing technological innovation, uh, and that in turn is is uh, resulting in competition. You know, think of Uber and Airbnb. Um, and then, of course, finally, we had the surge in commodity prices. Now, of those three, the only one which has clearly changed direction is the collapse in commodity prices. They're now rising again. Um, so that will take a lot of the edge off deflation and deflationary fears. Um, but the other factors, um, comp- more competition, partly technologically inspired, partly due to spare capacity around the world, they still remain. Um, so I suspect that when you translate that to Australia, it means we stay in this low inflation environment for some time to come. Um, I, I suspect probably a year or more before we get back into the Reserve Bank's target range of 2 to 3%. So another year or so, and uh, so that would mean uh, the the Reserve Bank would be under pressure for another year or so to cut rates again. Yes, yes, the risks are all on the downside. There's certainly nothing in this which is pointing to a rate hike anytime soon. Um, if anything, it's still all on the downside. Um, and I think the Reserve Bank is also very conscious of avoiding um, further downside in the rate of inflation because if you get that, then you can build that into inflationary expectations. And of course, it then becomes much harder to get inflation back up, period. So I think that, yeah, the risks all skewed to the downside in terms of what the Reserve Bank might do on interest rates over the next 6-12 months. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. So what do you think about that, Leon? The the figures were very interesting. They came in much higher than expected. And uh, certainly it would indicate that the RBA will sit on its hands for the time being. But, uh, you know, next year, there, there, I mean, there's still definitely an easing bias there. So next year, they'll probably look at cutting rates again. That's after more figures from the economy and uh, the labour market come in. And the next, of course, more figures from CPI. And the only casualty may well be the housing market. That's right. And, of course, uh, people relying on uh, interest rates to maintain an income. Yeah, and that's getting a bit tight. 
That's right. And now the news. Leon, what have we got? Well, Gary, for a start, China's yuan has touched a six-year low against the dollar in the face of a slump in exports and the rising greenback. With expectations, the Fed will raise interest rates in December and hopes of a victory by Hillary Clinton in next month's US presidential election. And the exchange rates for the yuan dipped as low as 6.788 per dollar, which is the weakest intraday price going back to 2010. And the trend has seen the yuan weakening 4.1% this year, with some analysts saying that China's central bank has pulled back its support since the yuan was included in the International Monetary Fund's special drawing rights of reserve currencies in October. Now, global uncertainties, such as Britain's exit from the European Union, have also exacerbated the yuan's fall. And it's also triggered memories of China's surprise devaluation of the yuan last August. But the markets aren't too concerned at the moment because while the yuan has been weakening against the US dollar, it remains stable in the basket of other major currencies. And, of course, it's not hurting Chinese export prices. Not at all. Part of the deal, I think. That's right. Now to Australia, and it's interesting, a group of outback families with big livestock and transport operations has put in a $386 million bid for all shares of a Kidman cattle empire. And the offer trumps the bid from billionaire Gina Reinhardt and a Chinese business partner for Australia's largest beef producer and landowner. And the syndicate is known as BBHO, which is an acronym based on the family names of directors Tom Brinkworth, Sterling Bunteen, Malcolm Harris and Viv Oldfield. And they submitted their proposal to the Kidman board on Sunday. Now, the group sees the syndicate more than trebling the Kidman cattle operation to more than 500,000 head, making it one of the biggest cattle producers in the world and putting the company on the global map. And the offer is higher than the joint $365 million bid from Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting and Shanghai uh, cred. And the other trump card is a syndicate doesn't even require government approval, unlike Ms. Reinhardt's bid. Now, the Kidman board is required to consider any offers that are higher or superior to the one on the table. However, Ms. Reinhardt and her Chinese partners out there trying to match rival bids should they get the nod from the Foreign Investment Review Board family. And family-owned Kidman runs a massive herd. It's almost 200,000 cattle on the largest private land holding in Australia, covering about 1.3% of the nation's total land area and 2.5% of its agriculture land and of course it produces grass-fed bid for export to Japan, the US and Southeast Asia. So there's a real battle going on there between Reinhardt and the Australian group. Yeah, that's right. And and money probably isn't going to decide the buyer in the end uh, because as you say, the Foreign Investment Review Board and by inference, the National Party. That's right. In Canberra. And the other factor is that the uh, Australian consortium wouldn't have to sell Anna Creek, which is on uh, bordering Woomera. That's right. And that uh, would be a big plus. That is another very, very big plus. On the other hand, Reinhardt has very close connections with the government. And with Barnaby Joyce. And, of course, with Barnaby Joyce. And, uh, of course, Peter Credlin now works for her. (laughs) Yes, well, another penny turns up. That's right. So it's anyone's guess which way it'll go. So it'll be fascinating to watch. Indeed. Now, uh, Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison is pushing for states and territories to remove unnecessary land planning regulations to increase the supply of housing. Mr Morrison flagged the coalition's intentions to target state planning regulations, the next Council of Federation uh, regulations that uh, he'll convene in early December. And he has pointed to supply-side constraints, preventing people from owning a house, including complex land planning and development regulations, insufficient land release, the planning 
cost and availability of infrastructure provision, transaction embedment taxes, public attitudes towards urban infill, and for Sydney in particular, physical, physical geographic constraints. And he says state governments could do a great deal to improve planning processes and provision of infrastructure. And he's also highlighted that capital city prices have grown more rapidly than the rest of the country. Now, for their part, the opposition says the government actually has to get serious and consider negative gearing and capital tax breaks. And increasing available land isn't as simple as it looks because you increase, um, you build houses on the outskirts of Melbourne and Sydney and there's no infrastructure to support them. No public transport, as Joe Hockey once tried to suggest, poor people don't drive cars. Yeah, that's right. Now, what I find interesting, though, is the way that this whole debate about housing affordability has now become a political issue. That means it's more likely to get attention. But in the end, it's price. And if the, we get RBA cut rates again next year, there's every indication the house prices could That's rise. Right. Now, consumer confidence has nosedived to its lowest level since May on the back of last week's disappointing job numbers and stock market falls. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has consumer confidence falling 3.6% to 113.6%. Now, people's views about finances fell over the next 12 months. It crashed 7.1%, bring the index down to its lowest level since September last year. Households' view of current economic conditions fell 2.7%, but views towards economic conditions over the next five years had an even sharper fall, and they crashed 4.9%, and that's not a good sign. The Reserve Bank of Australia is less likely to cut interest rates, with inflation rising faster than expected because of increases in the price of fruit and vegetables, as we discussed with Shane Oliver. Consumer price index rose 0.7% in the September quarter for 2016, which is significantly higher than the uh, 0.04% rise in the previous quarter. And that takes annual inflation rise to 1.13%. Now, economists have been, had tipped inflation to rise by a lower 0.5%, with annual inflation at 1.1%. Now, the higher inflation rate was driven by price rises for fruit, which is up 19.5%, vegetables up 5.9%, electricity 5.5%, and tobacco 2.3%. And the ABS said the price rises for fruit and vegetables was driven by bad weather, including floods in major growing areas, and that impacted on supply. As uh, Shane said, uh, we've had that once before with the price of bananas. That's right, and it, it, it evens out in the end. Yeah. That does mean, though, as Shane said, that the RBA won't be cutting interest rates this year. But, you know, if they do it, they'll do it next year. Yeah, well, 1.3 is a lot closer to the two-point floor that uh, the RBA's got on inflation. So anyway, um, we're now in the lead-up to the float of Alinta Energy, and Goldman Sachs has valued it at between $4 billion and $5.197 billion in the lead-up to the uh, planned float before Christmas. And Alinta's equity value, according to Goldman Sachs, is between $3.2 billion and $4.38 billion. The enterprise value range has been put between $4 billion and $5.197 million. The valuation comes out to 10 to 13 times earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortisation. And the analyst estimated Alinta's EBITDA will grow 2% in 2017 and 11% in 2018. UBS, meanwhile, has given Alinta an enterprise value of between $3.587 billion and $4.15 billion. Macquarie has estimated the company need to be worth somewhere between $3.06 billion and $3.62 billion. Now, Alinta is expected to lodge the prospectus in November, and if successful, it'll begin trading on the market in December. And the company is being put up for sale by its owners, which include TPG Capital 
and numerous hedge funds, and they rescued Alinta after it almost collapsed during the global financial crisis. Now, Commonwealth Bank of Australia and Wells Fargo in the US have just unveiled a new technology for trades. They've tested blockchain technology on a real live international cotton trade between US subsidiary of Brigham Cotton, represented by Wells Fargo, and Brigham Cotton Marketing Australia, represented by CBA. And the technology allows a distributed ledger to automatically trigger the release of payment electronically is pinged on wrong to its destination to China's Qingdao province. Now, normally, there'd be a delay in this sort of transaction. It requires a letter of trade between the banks, guaranteeing that the seller will receive their payment once goods have been shipped, and also requires reams of papers, multiple contracts, fact statement between shipping companies and exporters. Now, blockchain creates a digital ledger of transactions and shares it among a distributed network of computer, and that allows a processes of Bitcoin cryptocurrency and allows the banks to track the shipment in real time. And the result, the exchange of payment is guaranteed in minutes rather than days, with all parties on a single collaborative ledger viewing it online in an instance. And I reckon, Gary, this trade could herald big change in the $4 trillion trade finance industry. I think it's really exciting. It's very exciting. It's, I mean, it's been coming. It's another step in the digitization of money. And, of course, one more step for Bitcoin, which is very interesting. I think it's fascinating. Now, Bigger Cheese shares crashed this week after the company disclosed its partnership to sell infant formula and nutritional powders in China with vitamin maker Blackmores failed to meet sales forecasts. Now, bigger chairman Barry Irvin told shareholders that regulatory changes in China combined with new channels had left an impact on the strategy and the drop in the share price is consistent with what's been happening generally with dairy companies in the market. Ultra-low milk prices have seen shares in Warrnambool Cheese and Butter Factory and Murray Goldburn's MG Unit Trust fall. Now, Mr. Irvin said bigger's earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortisation would be broadly in line with its 2016 result, but the provision of the Blackmores venture will hit the bottom line. On the plus side, he said dairy commodity prices would improve throughout the next 12 months, but uh, that had to be balanced out against the infant formula question, and uh, shareholders did not like it. That's true. Um, In fact, the whole of the milk industry's got a few problems. The uh, local uh, price of dollar a litre in the two major supermarkets, um, a a lot of young dairy farmers are getting out of the industry. And they're very worried about it. They're going broke. That's right. Now, IBM is now negotiating a confidential settlement with the Australian government over the 2016 census debacle, which prevented people from accessing the Australian Bureau of Statistics site in Australia's first online centres. And the meltdown, which saw the site going offline for 40 hours, thousands tried to key in data, cost taxpayers an estimated $30 million. Now, IBM was paid $9.7 million to develop and run the e-census. And IBM Managing Director Kenny Purcell apologised unreservedly when he presented evidence to a Senate committee this week. He said no IBM staff member had been sacked or disciplined over the incident, however, and he didn't indicate how much compensation would be paid, but he was confident the matter would be resolved soon. Now, what's interesting there was that IBM was relying on a geo-blocking distributed denial of service prevention plan, which are called Island Australia in the lead up to Census Day and IBM in effect put NextGen and Vocus under a bus when IBM engineer Michael Shellcross told the committee that efforts to instruct NextGen and Focus in the implementation of the plan came to nothing. He said it had worked when they talked to Telstra, it didn't work with NextGen and Focus. Yeah, a good question is why. So uh, that was interesting. And uh, finally, Gary, market leader Coles Supermarkets is seeing a slowing 
in sales growth. The big supermarket chain yesterday reported rise in headline sales of 2.9% to 7.9 billion in the September quarter, and that was half the full year 5.8% reported in August. And Woolworths will be, of course, reporting on Friday. Now, both Coles and Woolworths report suffering from price deflation, which is the price tags on goods on shelves that keep falling, as they're fighting to keep customers from shifting to discount chains such as Aldi. Now, what was interesting yesterday was that the West Farmers share price, West Farmers, of course, owns Coles, their price their share price collapsed, and that led the market a lot lower yesterday. Yeah, it was 5% down, wasn't it? Was it was something like, it fell more than 5%, more yes. Real wages haven't gone up in Australia in, what, four or five years? That's right. And people are feeling the pinch. It's going to be reflected in uh, supermarket prices. Yeah, and the other point, of course, is that Aldi, which is huge, gives good quality or reasonable quality for low prices. That's right, and it's expanding. And that's it for now, Gary. And next week, uh, we're going to be talking to Xavier Chris from Swift Network. Yes, indeed. And uh, that's going to be fascinating. And uh, in the meantime, you can come in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.